Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We're in John chapter 5 and this year we've started a, a series looking at the Gospel of John particularly focusing on a portrait of Jesus. John is one of four biographies of Jesus's life um, recorded in the Bible. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and one of those four stands out to be very different than the others. The Gospel of John um, has the same basic claims that Jesus talks about um, but the way that John records it is is different in terms of the way the words of Jesus are captured and the way that he narrates about Jesus is really different to the other three uh, gospel accounts so when you read John's gospel um, or you ask Alexa to read it to you um, it sometimes feels like you're in a movie about the same person but by a very different director because John Um, has had more time than the other uh, biography accounts to think on what he wants to talk about. Um, John is the last living apostle from the 12. He lives to about 80, 90, 20 or 30 years longer than any other disciple. Um, Decades have passed since Jesus has risen and ascended to heaven and John has gone around planting loads of churches. And there have been controversies in those churches and he writes letters to them like you can read in 1 John. And the issues in those churches is that some people don't believe that Jesus is fully God and some people don't believe that he's fully human. So John has the longest amount of time than anyone recorded in the Bible to reflect and hone his language on how he wants to explain the identity of Jesus. What is this portrait of Jesus that he wants to um, give? He's had years of practice in planting churches, pastoring churches, teaching from the Bible about the identity of Jesus. And that reflects in the tone that he uses and how he crafts the narrative together. Uh, John goes bold. In his biography, he reorders the accounts of Jesus's life. He doesn't feel the, f- uh, follow the traditional narrative of putting things in chronological order. Instead of using time, he uses theological themes to help him develop his points so that he can cement what he wants to talk about um, Jesus. The most famous example is when Jesus goes into the temple and starts throwing tables up and of the money changes and creating a bit of a riot. That happens at the end of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And it makes sense because it's a culminating event before Jesus goes on to die. But in John's gospel, it's recorded in chapter 2. And the reason why John records it at the start of his gospel is because of what Jesus stands up and says when he's doing the riot of turning tables up. He's claiming to be the temple. And it's a theme that John starts his whole gospel about. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us templed with us, dwelt amongst us, and we saw his glory. And so John wants to keep themes and keep them rolling and develop through his narrative. Um, He builds momentum towards Jesus is God. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He is the son of God, equal with God, and he will fulfill the temple by being the way to God. So instead of using time, he uses theological themes through his Bible resulting in John chapter 20, where he writes, I've written all of these things 
so that you will believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. So we're going to look at John chapter 5 today, when Jesus heals this man by the pool of Bethesda. Um, and we're going to see what it means and why Jesus does this, particularly on a Sabbath day. We are going to do a bit of a deep dive through the Bible um, and why, we're going to understand why John would select a miracle like this to be recorded in, in making his points. I want us to see, once we get out of um, this morning, that we'll appreciate why Jesus does things, but also how that transforms our lives as followers of Jesus. So John opens chapter 5. Jesus goes into Jerusalem on one of the holy days, goes to the pool of Bethesda, which is covered in five porches. He's met crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralysed. One of them has been there for 38 years. Jesus sees him and says, would you like to get well? I can't, the sick man says, for I have no one to put me into the pool. Jesus says, stand up, pick up your bed and walk. This is an image of the Pool of Bethesda. It was located in archaeological digs in around the, the 19th century. It was built 800 years before Jesus um, and it acted as a reservoir to supply, uh, collect rainwater and supply water to the, the city of Jerusalem. A second pool was added a few hundred years later um, and it became a Jewish ritual bathing pool. It was divided by a wall that acted as a dam. The fresh water would collect in the upper pool and then every now and again they would open the gate or the plug um, and the water would flow into the lower pool which allowed uh, large numbers of Jews to ritually wash themselves before going to the temple because they needed to wash in fresh water. Herod then develops the area um, that we see here um, and he starts to dedicate it to religious and medical purposes. He dedicates it to the Roman goddess of fortune and the god of healing. So I'm not entirely sure when Jesus was here whether the pool has a Jewish ritual context or a pagan worship context. And I think it's quite helpful to know that both are options because it doesn't really matter in terms of what Jesus then goes on to do. Uh, some of you know that um, I I'm not a social kind of guy. I, I prefer numbers and books. Um, I'm not sure when the passion happened and started for me, but all I remember is when I got the choice to pick all of the topics to study at school, I picked maths and further maths, numbers and numbers, chemistry and physics, numbers that explain the real world. Um, and then in the past three or four years, I've started to really enjoy and develop a passion of, of reading or listening. Um, so in my preach today, what I want to do is share an insight into my fascination with God's words through numbers, words, patterns. And by the end of it, you will all want to be geeks with me. Okay, most of you are excited by that prospect. Good. Uh, we're going to look at two themes from John chapter 5, Shema and Sabbath, or Shabbat. So let's, talk, let's look at Shema. I alluded that John orders his biography of Jesus through themes, and one of the themes is the temple. Let me reread a few verses that Luke read from chapter 5 and see if you can spot the theme that John is trying to make um, in response to the religious leaders that are offended because he's just broken their Sabbath Lord. Um, Jesus answers them, my father is working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to kill him because not only did he break the Sabbath, he called God his father, therefore making himself 
equal with God. So Jesus explained, I'm telling you the truth. The son can do nothing of himself. He only does what the father is doing. Whatever the father does, the son does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than you've just seen healing this man. As the father gives life and raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the father, you get it, judges no one and instead the son judges everything. For every, everyone who honours the son will honour the father. Jesus says over and over and over again, it's the Father and me. He makes himself equal with God. He makes himself one with God. If there were ancient microphones, this is the Jesus mic drop moment. Jesus, John is narrating this passage and he uses the word oneness directly from the Jewish Shema. The Shema is the central Judaism prayer and it comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Think of it how we would use the Lord's Prayer in Christendom today. The Shema expresses that God is one and God is superior and it's recited morning and evening, morning and evening. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you will love you, the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Jesus has just healed a paralyzed man on a Sabbath day during one of the religious festival weeks when hundreds or thousands of religious Jews have been celebrating and joined together reciting the Shema morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. And Jesus doesn't just have the audacity to heal someone on the Sabbath. He then says, oh, that's God working on the Sabbath and I'm doing it with him. They know exactly what he means. He is claiming oneness with God. He is writing his name into the Jewish Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And so they want to kill him. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only did he break the Sabbath, but he called God his father, making himself equal with God. You roll on a few chapters to John chapter 10. Jesus is at another festival, the festival of Hanukkah, which is the dedication or rededication of the temple. That's our theme again. And he says, standing up in front of everybody, I and the Father are one. And the religious leaders now want to stone him to death. John is continuing this theme through his biographical account. Jump through another chapter, John chapter 17. Philip, one of his disciples, turns to Jesus and says, show us the Father. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What I say, I don't speak of my own, but I speak because the Father is dwelling, is tabernacling in me. So now John weaves the temple theme and the oneness theme together to land a point that Jesus is ultimately uniting humanity and God together. They are dwelling in each other. And I'm not quite sure I can explain how something can be in you and you can be in that same thing all at the same time. Like it doesn't make 3D space. You can't be in this room and this room be in you at the same time. It doesn't make sense. So John is trying to put language on the concept of being one with God. And Jesus takes the very heartbeat of the Jewish religious prayer and he says unequivocally, I am equal with God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, us, for us followers of Jesus, there is only one God, the Father who created all things. 
And there is one Lord, Jesus the Messiah. John and Paul take the Shema and they, in, in the place of the Lord is one place, Father and Son. And so, as we look at the miracle that happened on a Sabbath day, Jesus, as God, can fulfill the Sabbath. He can fulfill, bring to pass what the creation narrative of the Seventh-day Sabbath pattern was supposed to be all about. Take a breath. You good? Now we've got that foundation, we're going to look at the Sabbath. And we've just been snorkeling. So now we've got to put the scuba diving equipment on and we've got to get down here deep. Sabbath, Shabbat. Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, and it creates quite a storm. This is only one of two occasions in John's gospel where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath day. So we need to pay attention as to why John would pick it to record in his gospel. And for us to understand why Jesus would do this, we have to go all the way back to the very first pages of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, empty, chaotic, and God said, let there be light. To the Hebrew reader, the first few pages of your Hebrew Bible, the Torah, uh, would have been used to teach you how to read and understand God. You would see patterns and themes that were emphasized in that first narrative. And on the first pages of the Hebrew Bible, we find the creation narrative. God creates heavens and earth, and he structures a week of seven days. He creates on days one through six, and he stops and rests on day seven. So that in Genesis chapter two, we then say, we then read, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all of the work that he had done. Later in Exodus 20, when God gives the 10 commandments to, the, to his people, the children of Israel, the fourth commandment is about this day, the seventh day of the week. And he calls it Shabbat, Sabbath. And, and God introduces this remembrance of, of Shabbat through the Ten Commandments. Getting to seventh day rest was what God was designing. Getting to seventh day rest was what God was creating. So God builds patterns of seventh day rest throughout the whole of Scripture to help us understand this is his ultimate grand design. The seventh day becomes the Sabbath day when God rests and the people of Israel should rest. The seventh year becomes a Sabbath year when the land should rest. The cycle of seven times seven years would initiate a Sabbath jubilee year where debts were cancelled, lands were restored, slaves were released to stop intergenerational poverty. And so God designs and interweaves in through this whole narrative this image of Sabbath rest through the number seven. And there are two patterns to note. One through seven is the complete set. It's the complete cosmic order and it cycles through sevens. And it's a journey from one to seven, working together to uh, repeat that seven cycle. So you start in the chaos and the disorder and the darkness, and you proceed day one, God creates light. Day two, he creates. Day three, he creates. Day four, he creates. Day five, cre day six, and then he gets to seven, and he stops. Uh, and he stops working, and he rests, and he enjoys in the completeness of his creation. The Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, was the pinnacle of the week. 
the culmination of what all of the other days were building up to. And what's magical about Genesis chapter 1 is that days 1 to 6 have a morning and an evening. And the morning and evening were the first day. The morning and evening were the second day. All the way through to day 6. But on day 7, the phrase, there was a morning and an evening was the seventh day, does not exist. There is no morning or evening recorded for day 7. The picture is that day 7 went on and on and on. Creation work had ceased. So now they could just rest and enjoy it. For Adam and Eve in this perfect garden, every day after the first day seven was an eternal day seven. And God is pointing towards the journey that will culminate in eternal rest using this seventh day Sabbath. So I love numbers. And I've said the number seven loads of times. So let me just explode with what I have found to be absolutely amazing about the Hebrew number seven. Um, the Hebrew word num- seven is spelt with exactly the same consonants as wholeness or completeness. It's also spelt with the same consonants as the word oath in Hebrew. Shiva is seven, Saba is completeness, and Shivuha is oath. And Sabbath uses the same consonants to build its word out. So there is a word play going on here, providing us with the idea that God is making a promise at the very start of creation. He is making an oath to bring something to completeness. The day seven, the Sabbath rest. So Jesus, who has just made himself equal with God, the creator God, works on the Sabbath to bring about completeness, wholeness, ultimate rest. He is the oath from God, the promised one, the Messiah. And what is absolutely fascinating about John is that he takes this pattern of seven and he structures his whole biography around the number seven. He picks seven sign miracles to explain what Jesus is doing and he picks seven I am statements of Jesus to explain what Jesus is declaring about himself. All so that John can bash into our tiny little skulls, Jesus is God. He is the promised one. He is the completeness of God's design. So when I think now about the Sabbath, we are talking about so much more than a day of the week. We are talking about God is over time and he is taking it from a direction of chaos to completeness. And he's going to keep that promise. And the true seventh day rest, Shabbat, is fulfilled in Jesus. Take one more gulp of air with me. We're going to go a little bit, little bit deeper before we come up for air. The pattern um, about getting to Sabbath, the day number seven, um, is, is just like flooded through the scriptures. The number seven is introduced in the very first sentence of the Hebrew Bible. And it's threaded through the biblical narrative, through John's gospel, and all the way to Revelation, which is packed full of the number seven When you read the the creation narrative, it starts in Genesis 1 and it goes through about halfway through chapter 2. I I won't have a go at the people that created chapter sections, but they got it wrong. Um, The original Hebrew narrative consists of three sentences in Hebrew. The first sentence has seven Hebrew words. The second sentence has two lots of seven Hebrew words. The third sentence has three lots of seven Hebrew words. And in between the second and the third sentence is a parenthesis of seven paragraphs to narrate the seven days of creation. 
I think God was trying to make a point. You take that very first sentence, seven words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bereshit bara elchim et harashim vehet harites. Google Translate is amazing. In, in the Hebrew language that consists of seven Hebrew words, the middle word, number four, is the word et. It isn't translated in English because it's a grammatical term, and for us to get sense of Hebrew, we just reorder the words. So it disappears in the English translation. Et is made up of two letters, Aleph and Tav. Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Tav is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph and Tav. And so in the opening sentence of the Bible, there are seven Hebrew words. And in the middle is a single word with two letters, the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Wouldn't it just be amazing if Jesus stood up and said, I am the Aleph and Tav, I am the beginning and end? I think he did. To John, the writer of this gospel, in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation 22, Jesus uses the Greek alphabet. The first and the last letters, Alpha and Omega. And he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and end. So on the final pages of our Bible, Jesus riffs off the first sentence of the Hebrew Bible and communicates to us from the first ink strokes to the last ink strokes. He is working something from beginning to end. He is taking chaos to completeness and he is doing it through Jesus. So God introduces a cycle of seven days and his people are supposed to observe the seventh day as a reminder of this journey that God is taking them on. We don't have time to apply the same pattern to the seven days of creation, but if you did the same like with the seven days of creation that we did with the first sentence, take the middle day, day number four, God creates days, light to rule the skies. And he says that he creates lights to rule the skies for days, for years, for signs and for seasons. Now, don't think like me, it's spring, summer, autumn and winter, because the Hebrew word for seasons is the word moedim, which means festivals. So in creation, God is planting a seed to say you will remember festivals as part of the cycle of the cosmic order. Moedims means like, remember the sacred festivals. When you get to Leviticus 23, guess how many Moedims God introduces to his people? Seven. Guess what's the first one? Sabbath. Wherever you look through the Bible, God is pointing us to the Sabbath rest. And he is going to fulfill it in Jesus. From the start to the end, God is showing us the design pattern. Which is why, when we get back to John chapter 5, the last verse that Luke read is, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. The scriptures are pointing to me. Across the four gospels, Jesus is recorded healing on the Sabbath day. How many times? Seven times. Umberto Casuto, who is an Italian Hebrew scholar, says to suppose that all these appearances of this pattern are mere coincidence is not possible. This numerical symmetry is, as it were, the golden thread that binds all the parts together. Umberto was a uh, Hebrew scholar at the University of Florence until World War II. When the Nazis invaded Italy, he moved to the University of Jerusalem, and he has produced the most accurate text of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. He corrected spelling, 
the layout of text, the paragraphs, the poetic lines. So the translation that we read today, the modern translations, have been impacted by this dude who has searched the scriptures. So let's come up for air. What is the takeaway? Like Shema, Jesus claims to be God. Shabbat, God is taking an order from chaos to completeness through Jesus. My, my takeaway is very simple. Settle in and enjoy Jesus. The Hebrew word for resting, Shabbat, where we get the word Sabbath from, means to stop, to cease from. It's used loads of times through the Bible. Uh, one of the examples is Joshua 5, when the people of Israel go into the promised land. The manna that comes down from heaven, Shabbat. It stops. It ceases to come to be sent because there is no need of it. It doesn't mean it took a nap. It just means it stopped. And then in Exodus 20, when God introduces the Ten Commandments, he introduces this, this Shabbat, this Sabbath day rest for his people. When he explains it and gives it to his people, he uses two Hebrew words for rest. Remember the seventh day, keep it holy, because on it God rested, God nuaked. Therefore, Yahweh blessed Shabbat. Two words for rest, Shabbat, cease from, nuark. Nuark means to dwell, to settle in, to take up residence. So in Exodus 20, when God gives the remembrance of Shabbat to his people that Jesus is now going to fulfill in John chapter 5, he uses two words, Shabbat, stop working, Newark, settle in, take up residence. Newark is used for like the locusts in the plagues of Egypt. They settle into the land. They fill their bellies full of food. They enjoy the food. It's used of King David when he stops fighting. God gives him Newark to his enemies. It rests from his enemies so that he can just chill out. Like he can rest in the land with his people and enjoy the blessings that God has given him. So God, when he creates the seven-day cosmic order, he stops working and he enjoys the completeness of his work. Sometimes our view of Sabbath is just surface level, where it's like, like, like God was relaxing. God, God was like, it, it, he was tired, he needs a bit of a recharge, and so therefore that's our application of the Sabbath. Uh, a few weeks ago, I took an early flight from Manchester, um, and I was waiting to disembark uh, the aeroplane, um, stood up in the middle aisle like you do, like the, the seatbelt lights go off and everyone stands up in the middle aisle. And so I'm shoulder to shoulder with everybody waiting for the doors to open um, and Izzy FaceTimes me. It's five past eight in the morning. There on my screen, which now everybody on the plane can see, um, was our four-year-old hiding under the duvet. 30 minutes to get out of school, to get out of the house to get to school. And all she wanted to do was rest, sleep. One week later, I'm walking into a meeting. Two minutes past eight, I get a FaceTime from Izzy. Isla, eyes peeking out of the duvet. She didn't want to get out of bed to school. Um, so after some wonderful parenting and encouragement and bribery, she gets herself dressed. Um, and I walk into my meeting five minutes late. Last Thursday, I'm on a tour of some buildings in London with some visitors from the States and Japan. We're halfway around our second site visit. It's eight minutes past eight in the morning. <laughs> FaceTime. I casually allow the group to leave ahead of me and I take a sidestep. Isla is set up just wanting to have a chat with her dad. She is not dressed, she is in her pajamas and she would prefer to be sleeping than getting ready for school. 
Forget my boss and my boss and my boss's boss. I've got a boss at home that needs uh, attention. <laughs> Sabbath rest is not passive like watching TV or chilling under the duvet. Sabbath rest is like sitting in front of the fire with a loved one or unpacking your suitcase when you get to your, your relative's house on holiday. It's settling in. It's enjoying the company and the presence of those people who are around you once the work has been accomplished. For us, it's enjoying the finished work of Jesus, which has taken us from chaos to completeness. But there are days when it doesn't quite feel like that. Rather than experiencing the rest of Jesus, we are weighed down by the burdens of life. Rather than being able to settle in and enjoy him, we have doubts, we're discouraged, we're despondent. And that's okay, because the one thing Jesus promises us in this life is it's tough. In Matthew 11, when John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the greatest man who has ever been born, was in prison having a hard time, he was doubting Jesus, he sends disciples to Jesus, Jesus concludes his response like this. Come to me, all ye who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When we feel the burden of life, Jesus invites us to rest, to settle in with him, to take his yoke and learn from him. He isn't giving you a yoke. He is inviting you to partner with him in his yoke. You use a yoke to body a strong ox with a young ox. So one can do the work and the other one can learn. And that is the picture that Jesus uses when someone needs some rest. Jesus takes the burden when we partner with him under his yoke and we learn how gentle he is. We can fight the battles on our own. We can grin and bear it. We can choose our own yoke or worth someone else's. But Jesus says his yoke is easy. His yoke is light compared to the alternatives. So as I look at John chapter 5 and I see Jesus claiming to be God, fulfilling the Sabbath rest, I realise that we don't need to do the working. God has done the working and Jesus has completed our work of salvation from beginning to end, from chaos to completeness. And he invites us to Shabbat and Newark to rest and settle in with him. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode. From our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.
longer I'll follow 